was I, I got my calendar messed up, and I started that series way back in June, uh, and now I'm carrying it on today and the next Sunday about the very early Christian church, some of the things that happened right after, during and after the New Testament period that have really uh, shaped Christianity in the period uh, following the New Testament. So this morning I want to talk a little bit about the Christian church in the second century. Now remember when we talk about numbered centuries, it's always a little confusing because the second century is the century with the numbers in the 100s, right? It's from technically from 101 to 200 uh, AD or CE, depending upon which system you want to adopt there. But the 100s AD, New Testament was written probably between the 50s AD and maybe about 100, maybe a little past that. Uh, some folks think that the Revelation may not have been written down until 105, 110, something like that uh, AD. But the second century is a period that in the past hadn't been much studied. Dr. Albert Outler, you may have heard of him, he's a professor at Southern Methodist University, and he once posed a challenge to scholars. He said, why don't we get New Testament scholars together with church history scholars and study the second century project? It was a very interesting project that is still ongoing uh, and was basically, is basically based in North Texas. He got scholars from uh, Abilene Christian University, from Baylor University, from SMU and TCU and other places to work together on the second century because nobody was paying any attention to the second century. It was the century after the New Testament, so the New Testament scholars said, well, that's beyond our boundaries, and most of what we call the patristic scholars, the scholars of the early church fathers, were much more interested in things like monasticism that I'll talk about next week, or the development of creeds, which was a little later, and, and they thought of the second century as being a little before their time. So uh, it's, a, it's a growing area for scholarship. The period is just past the New Testament period, maybe even overlapping with that period. There was a great variety of Christian communities in this period. One of the things Nancy may find as you start to study Christian theology is, is you hope you're going to get some questions answered like, did they or did they not baptize infants in the early Christian church? And the answer is yes. Uh, because what, what we find, and you, you just get some communities that clearly baptize infants, and they say the holy apostles and all the church has always baptized infants. Only damnable heretics would not do that. And you get other churches that say no Christians have ever baptized infants. No one has ever known this practice. Only a heretic would do something like that. And so it's kind of disappointing that sometimes you don't find the uniformity. You want to be able to say they did this, and and somebody changed it to this. But what you find is a great diversity of Christian communities and churches in this period. Christian communities were spreading around the Mediterranean world in this period with no central office. Now, there are versions of church history that says there was a central office, maybe in Rome, for example, but uh, I, I don't think it really works out. I think it's a very decentralized movement that, that you have going on in the second century A.D. Let me make this a little more explicit. At the beginning of this period, around 100 A.D., after the books of the New Testament had been written, 
there was still no accepted list or what we call the canon of the New Testament. Nobody had New Testaments as we think of them today. Nobody had Bibles with the 66 books that we think of today in the Bible. Uh, this congregation might have a copy of the letter to the Laodiceans. You know the letter to the Laodiceans? That's not in our New Testament. This congregation over here might have a copy of the letter to the Romans. They probably had one of those in Rome. This congregation over here might have what we call 2 Corinthians, but not 1 Corinthians, and so on and so forth. They just had different writings scattered out in different congregations, and they hadn't been forced to think, all right, now which ones of these writings are the authoritative writings that we're going to consider to be our scriptures uh, as Christians. There was no agreement that Christians ought to be using the Old Testament. In fact, some communities, as we will see, thought that that was not the right thing for Christians to do and that Christians should only rely on what we would call New Testament scriptures, even though they had no agreement as to what those were. So this is a very fluid situation, a very complicated situation in the early Christian church. There are several bodies of literature from this period that are published in collections uh, and you can write them. The first group is what we call the Apostolic Fathers, uh, writings written in the early second centuries including seven authentic letters of a bishop named Ignatius who was in Antioch uh, Ignatius had been arrested by Roman authorities uh, and was being taken to Rome and during his journey he wrote letters uh, from these seven churches, not quite the same churches as the seven churches mentioned in Revelation, but many of them are actually the same name. So he's, he's following probably within 10 or 20 years of the writing of the Revelation and uh, in much the same area. And his letters read very much like the letters in the New Testament. Uh, I often have my students read some of the letters of Ignatius just to begin. There's a document called the Didache, a document that scholars are very divided about. We usually date it to around 149, 150 A.D., but the truth is that in its final form it may not have come together until the 180s, and it may include material that goes back as early as the New Testament. The Didache means the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, an interesting book because it's got a description of the Lord's Supper uh, and baptism, and it's uh, one of the prayers that it has for the Lord's Supper. Uh, talks, uh, it says, blessed are you, O Lord God, king of the universe. That's the way Jewish blessings over meals typically begin, so it looks like it was closely connected to Jewish communities. And it's got an interesting thing about Y'all ever heard of Baptists? You know, the Baptists here in Texas. It's got an interesting thing about baptism. It says, now when you baptize, you should immerse people in running water. Okay, so immersion is the normative thing. But then it says, but if you don't have running water, you can immerse them in still water. And if you don't have uh, enough still water, then you can pour water three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, so, so in other words, immersion was the norm, but it sort of messes up our scheme that you know, either you immerse or you pour or you sprinkle or something like that. And it basically says, yeah, you should immerse, but we're not too worried about it, okay? You, you've got your, your choice of different modes of baptism. Tim, any churches that still pour in three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? 
Mennonites, yes, I thought that's, that's tradition in which, no, you are not Mennonite, right? You grew up in Brethren Church, so, okay, ask Tim to speak sometime. Have you got him to speak about the Mennonites and the Brethren? You got to do this, okay? All right, the Mennonites, yeah, poor. Yeah. See, I always thought Mennonites were just kind of German Baptists, and so they should immerse people, but they, but, but they, they, they didn't meet my stereotype there. There's a document called The Shepherd of Hermas, a kind of psychedelic document. You start wondering halfway through this book what this guy was smoking or what he was drinking when he was writing this. But it's, it's kind of interesting because it's about the question of whether you can have forgiveness of sins after baptism. Now, you don't worry about this, probably. You all know that people sin after baptism. But early Christians, some of them thought, if you ever sinned after baptism, you were basically cut off. You had made a promise at the time you were baptized that you were not going to do that, and Christian community might cut you off from fellowship. And, and Hermas has this psychedelic kind of... He's, he says he's, he's attending a lady who was bathing by the river, and he was watching her clothes. And suddenly this heavenly being shows up and says, Hermas, I know what you're thinking about. <laughs> and, um, he, uh, and, and, sort of the, and the heavenly being keeps changing, and uh, it's just it's kind of weird and wacky. And, um, and, and, but the main issue, though, is one-time offer only, okay? Today only, blue light special. You can be forgiven of your sins once, and then we're going back to no more after baptism. But it's kind of acknowledging that the early church was dealing with the issue of sin after baptism and how you uh, reunite people with the congregation. There are two letters misspelled here in my uh, writing of uh, St. Clement to the Romans. Now, St. Clement... Uh, was, uh, excuse me, two letters, I, I've got it quite wrong. Clement was the bishop of Rome, so he's what some would call a pope, uh, one of the early bishops of Rome, and he's writing to the Corinthians, two letters to the Corinthians. And, and it's interesting because he's writing in probably the 120s AD, and he says, Corinthians, the problem with your church is you're all divided into different factions. Now, that sounds really contemporary to a lot of us in a lot of different churches, but it really sounds like Paul's letters to the Corinthians. Remember, Paul had said, some of you say, I am of Cephas, some say, I am of Apollos, some say, I am of Christ, top that. Uh, and uh, it looks like the congregation had sort of come to have that same set of problems. So a very interesting set of uh, early Christian documents we call the Apostolic Fathers. Then around the middle of the second century, you begin getting a lot of writings that we simply lump together as heterodox writings, writings of various groups often lumped together, I think quite unfairly, under the title Gnostic. Okay, that's the term people used. Anything that was weird and wacky in the early church, it was Gnostic. Okay, that was the word they used for it. And what we're realizing is that that's, that's unfortunate because lots and lots of different groups with all kinds of different interesting teachings uh, get lumped together under that title. But lots of different writings, many of them came to light in the 1950s, when scholars were excavating a monastery in Egypt, one of these early Christian monasteries at a place called Nag Hammadi, and they found a trove of early Christian documents, and it included a lot of this interesting kind of esoteric or heterodox literature. So we've got that literature. And then we have a group of writers that we call the second century apologists. Unlike 
the earlier apostolic fathers, these like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, and then the later writer Tertullian of Carthage around 200 AD. These are much more sophisticated writers. Tertullian was a lawyer who had become a Christian and felt like he had to leave his law practice when he became a Christian. How do you like that? Um, <coughs> My friend Bishop Will Willimon says, you know, in the early Christian church, most people were welcomed. There were certain professions that were not really welcomed. Uh, pimps, prostitutes, lawyers, and university professors in particular <laughs> were the ones that were most singled out. He's, he's exaggerating a little bit, though, though uh, Tertullian... Uh, brilliant mind, one of the first theologian in Latin, Justin Martyr writing at Rome around 150 AD, Irenaeus of Lyon, who had actually grown up in Asia Minor, what we'd call Turkey today, and around 180 is writing against some of these heterodox writings. So these heterodox writings are what I'm describing as weird and wacky teachings of the church in the second century. Now the thing about weird and wacky people, if you've ever been around them, and I'm around them a lot, Nancy, uh, is that if they have any self-confidence at all, they don't think they're weird and wacky. In fact, they think the rest of us are weird and wacky. See, this is the thing. It just depends upon the perspective from which you look at things, of course. But from the perspective of Christianity, as it has evolved and existed through the centuries, from what I would call Orthodox Christianity, or you might call proto-Orthodox, pre-Orthodox Christian churches, these groups look uh, a little strange, a little different. So I want to tell you about five weird and wacky ideas that were really going around in the second century. They didn't always go together. I mean, this is one of the things scholars like to do in the past, is to say these are the five things that characterize Gnosticism, but it's really uh, not correct. I mean, the five ideas, there were more ideas like this, but five ideas that were going around in the 100s AD and that forced Christians to start thinking, all right, what is the kernel or nucleus of our faith? What is the most basic thing? What is it that, that defines Christian faith? And, and where are the limits? You know, where have you kind of crossed the line and stand outside of the consensus that we have as churches? The first idea, and I think maybe the most dangerous one, is the idea that I like to describe as deuterotheism. Now, defteros in Greek means second, like the second book of the, uh, the second repetition of the law. Defteronomion is Deuteronomy. That's the second expression of the law. Defteros means second, and theos means God. Okay, so deuterotheism is the belief that there is a second God. And in particular, it's the idea that the Christian God is different from the God described in the Jewish scriptures. If you subscribe to deuterotheism then, you hold that Christianity is so far different than Judaism that Christians should not use the Jewish scriptures. And in fact, what a lot of folks thought was that there was really one true God uh, who was purely ethereal and a kind of thought God existing in the beautiful realm of thought, not messed up with material reality. And then there was a kind of falling out from the true God. And finally, you got a kind of middle management deity 
who was kind of stupid and didn't realize he was not the only God, thought he was the only God, and that's the God of the Old Testament. And he creates this nasty material world in which we are trapped now. So deuterotheism, very common to a lot of different people, sometimes associated with Gnosticism, something, sometimes not. There was a Roman teacher named Martian, not like my uncle the Martian, but like M-A-R-C-I-O-N. Martian was a teacher who did not really teach anything like what we're going to call Gnosticism, but Martian really did believe that the God described by Jesus Christ is not the God of the Old Testament. Uh, and he thought Christians should not use the Old Testament scriptures. And in fact, he had his own version of the Christian scriptures in which referen positive references to the Old Testament had been removed. And in fact, it's Martian's editing of the Bible, Martian's editing of the Christian books that sort of forces other Christians to begin thinking, all right, now what are the books that we ought to be reading in churches? And what are the appropriate versions of those books that we ought to be reading in churches? So deuterotheism, that's one of the big I'm going to say wacky or weird ideas of the second century. Some people say, well, you get this today when people say, well, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and pussycats and, you know, lovely things like that. Which is what, in technical theological language, Nancy, I'm just getting you ready for this. This is what we call bullshit, okay? <laughs> it's just not right. It's just... Wrong, because, because, I mean, because if you look in the Old Testament, there's plenty of tender mercy and love. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, look at the prophets and the, the Psalms and so tender mercies all over the place. And look at the New Testament, in case you haven't read Mark 13 or Matthew 25 or the Revelation to St. John the Divine lately, uh, there's a lot, of, a ton of judgment in the New Testament. So I, I think that's a kind of weak version of it. I think most people who say that about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, they just mean that the way people perceived God in that time, the way people perceive God in the New Testament, but Methodists and Episcopalians and Catholics and most Christians today say the New Testament and the Old Testament do not contradict each other. Jesus Christ is proclaimed in both of the Testaments. That's what we say in our Articles of Religion uh, of the United Methodist Church, uh, and so we affirm that the God described in the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and we use the scriptures, both the Hebrew scriptures that Jews use and the New Testament scriptures that Christians use. A second idea that's very closely related to that, and I don't have a, a simple tag for this idea, but it's the idea that the material creation, the physical creation, is not the work of the true God, but is the perverted work of a malevolent, that means evil, willing deity. Uh, the material world on this view is a kind of mistake. Now here's the point where early Christian thought could get tied up with uh, a lot of ancient philosophical ideas. Some, some ideas we sometimes describe as Greek or Hellenistic ideas. Um, Plato's Republic has this idea that we are sort of living in a shadow world and we only see dimly the shapes of reality. 
um, and, and someday the light will shine from on high and we'll see the real things. But things on earth are only dim shadows of things uh, beyond. I know I've told you this before. I remember using it, but it's my favorite illustration of this. So please let me do it one more time and then I'll shut up. <laughs> Once upon a time, up that away at SMU, there was a garbage can whose lid looked like Dallas Hall right? Uh, the garbage can lid looked like Dallas Hall. And so there was this debate going on in the campus newspaper, the Daily Campus that we call the Daily Compost. And the debate was whether the garbage can lid was a copy of Dallas Hall or whether Dallas Hall was a copy <laughs> of the garbage can lid. This is kind of a student thing going on. Philosophy professor wrote in and said, if any of you had ever read Plato, you would know that both the garbage can lid and Dallas Hall are copies of an original idea in heaven in the mind of God. See, that's Platonism. Actually, as a historian, I think they're both copies of an idea that's in Charlottesville, Virginia, right? Uh, you've seen University of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson's plans. You know that these are not quite original ideas that we have here on our lovely campus. But, but yeah, that, the Platonic idea was that thought world, th that's what's really true, and the material world is, is a little less true than that. It's kind of a shadow realm. And then there were kind of Eastern ideas, the ideas that we associate with Zoroastrianism and, and uh, Persian religion that might even say, the, the spiritual world is the good world and the, the material world is positively evil. Like there's a constant conflict of two deities, two gods, the good God and the bad God, and the world is always conflicted between the two. You didn't have to go that far, but the idea that the material creation is not the work of the true God, very popular idea, and it was tied up with a kind of practice uh, we call asceticism, and that means trying to punishing the body uh, so that the spirit can live. When I talk about early Christian monasticism next week, that's one of the ideas that I'm going to talk about as being tied up with this. The material creation is not the work of the true God, but is the perverted work uh, of a malevolent deity. Going the wrong way there. Third, Gnosticism properly is the notion that salvation comes by secret knowledge, by esoteric knowledge. The, the word for esoteric knowledge that's used in Greek is gnosis, gnosis. Um, and it means uh, that you are initiated into some things that haven't been told to others. Now, I can actually tell you what the secret was that most of them wanted to say. Most of them wanted to say, you are a spirit trapped in a body, right? See, so it goes right along with that idea that the spirit is true and good and the body is evil. And you, the secret knowledge that you come to when you become part of one of these groups is they finally tell you it's who you are. In a sense, it's know who you are, that bit of ancient wisdom. Uh, and who you are is a beautiful spirit trapped in this evil body, and you've got to get out of it. And they're going to teach you the levels, the stages that you need to go through to sort of transcend the body and, and get over with it. So you can see how all of these ideas could be tied up together. Uh, Christians typically want to say our salvation comes by faith in Christ, uh, not just by a kind of gnosis, though one of the things I will say is that the New Testament uses the word gnosis 
positively. Uh, for example, in Colossians, where uh, it says, here is the true gnosis, and, and what it says is Christos en imin, and that means Christ in y'all, okay? Second person plural, y'all, right? Christ in y'all, that's the real gnosis, it says, but there's nothing wrong with gnosis, and gnosis will remain a positive term for Christians for several uh, centuries. Here's another idea that could be tied up with that. The idea of the pre-existence of human souls, the idea that souls exist before they come into bodies and continue to exist after the death of the body. Now, most of us are going to affirm eternal life means that the soul continues to exist uh, after death, right? Uh, but the idea that souls exist prior to coming into the body, that's a little more challenging idea. Let me make one clarification. It's not reincarnation, it's just incarnation. And the, the idea is that you existed as a soul at one point and only one time you come into a body uh, and you are embodied, you are incarnate at that point, uh, and then you die and your soul continues to live. But you live before you come into the body. That's the challenging idea here. Now, I've got to talk about sex and anatomy a little bit here. Is that okay? Methodists don't talk about sex. I got this in a thing, you know, when traditionally we haven't. But one of the interesting ideas that ancient people had was that the way human reproduction worked was that men plant seeds in women's bodies. Right? Now, that's not the way it works today. That's not the way we understand it. Women have ova and they are fertilized by what men contribute right but you know they thought men did everything imagine that and um, <laughs> they thought men had in their bodies all the future generations you know it's an interest so, so in a sense pre-existence was an idea that could go along with that sort of weird and wacky view of anatomy and and sexual uh, Genesis that they had in the ancient world. But in particular is the idea that the soul really exists. This is the more platonic form of the soul exists before it comes into a body. So what they could say is we all existed in the beginning with God and we all fought, fell away from God and then we fell so far that we fell into these messy bodies that we're uh, messed up with right now and then um, you know, we got to get out of that. That could be tied up with all of those other ideas. Finally, a teaching about Jesus Christ. Really, two things about Christ that tended to be taught together, uh, and I would say is the fifth weird, wacky idea. Christ's role, preeminently for a lot of these folks, was the role of a teacher. Now, there's nothing wrong with a teacher. Okay, let me just make this perfectly clear. But uh, that's not the way we primarily think of Jesus Christ. I mean, we think of Jesus Christ as a teacher, a healer, but uh, primarily as a savior, who, the one who saves us from Christ, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's that basic gospel message. But uh, for a lot of these folks, Christ's principal thing is to teach you the secret knowledge. And the secret knowledge is 
who you are. You are a spirit trapped in a body, for example. That, that's who Jesus was. And they could read the parable of the prodigal son as a kind of way of teaching that, you know, who you, you came from the father and you, you got into the foreign country and you didn't realize. And so a messenger had to kind of tell you who you really were so you could go back to your own country. That's the way they thought of Jesus, primarily as a, a really, 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 really nice guy who was a really good teacher. Moreover, they wanted to say Christ did not suffer in a human body. If you took the view that the material creation is the work of the true, uh, uh, not the work of the true God, but the perverted work of a malevolent deity, then it's hard to associate Christ with that evil body. You know, how, how would you want Christ to be messed up with that? So docetism is the view that Christ only appeared to be human. He wasn't really human. He just looked that way. Dokin in Greek means to appear. Docetism is the idea associated with Christ that he only appeared to be a human being. How did the church respond to this? Well, it's interesting because the church responds by thinking through things, uh, coming to a consensus, enunciating that consensus, and then seeing if they can live with it. Uh, Contrary to what a lot of people think, Christians don't just get bored someday on an afternoon and say, let's think up new doctrines or something. What really happens is just what I've described. Things are said that are challenging, and then people say, no, 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 wait a minute. That, that's not the way I got it, and then they think about it, and they see if they can come to a consensus about it. Here's Irenaeus writing in southern Gaul or France in the 180s, and he's trying to say, all right, what should be our basis for teaching? And he's going to lay out four basic criteria for apostolic truth. The first thing, he says, is you've got to affirm the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And that meant for him, at the same time you affirm that the material creation is God's good creation. It, it sort of all went together. If you affirm the Hebrew Scriptures, then you affirm that in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. That means the one God, the true God, created the material creation, and God pronounced it's good. It's not just good, it's very good. The creation is God's good creation. One of the things that's said uh, not in the Apostles' Creed, Now it's very appropriate to use the Apostles' Creed because that really is the form of Christian teaching, very much like what we have from the second century. But later, when Christians formulate the Nicene Creed, they will say, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of all things visible and invisible. The maker of all things visible and invisible. See, the invisible things are the, the spiritual world, the things that Plato loved to talk about. But the visible things are the material world. That's the way of affirming the one God who is the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament created the material world. And that means we're affirming materiality is good, right? has all kinds of implications. You like to go fishing and hunting, you're going to like this teaching. But, you know, human bodies, they're supposed to be beautiful, and that's God's good creation, okay? So Jesus Christ can take a human body on this view, right? A real live human body. A second thing, he says, they appeal to the gospel story, that evangelion, that's the good news, that's sometimes described, you will love this, as the kerygma, 
The kerygma means the proclamation of the good news. Now that's kind of fundamental for Irenaeus. Irenaeus says it's that message, and the message is Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, just like 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 4. That basic message kind of structures our understanding of the Christian faith. See, if Christ died for our sins, katatasgrafas, according to the scriptures, he understood that meant the Old Testament scriptures, right? And so it was affirming the Old Testament at the same time as it told that story. So these two things went right together. He appeals to the basic Christian story, the gospel that had been transmitted orally, even apart from the New Testament. Third, he appeals to a growingly recognized list of Christian books, Christian scriptures, what we would later identify as the New Testament. He doesn't give us a list specifically. There is one list that we have from Rome around the 140s AD. It's uh, what we call the Moratorian Fragment, and it lists the four Gospels that we have. It lists a few of the letters that we have of Paul, not all of them. It lists a couple of the other letters of the New Testament. It lists the Acts of the Apostles. It doesn't list the Revelation, interestingly. So it's not quite the list of New Testament books that we have today, but it's getting there. And, and the churches are beginning to think about this in response to Martian and some of these other teachers who were, who were promulgating these kind of alternative ideas at this time. And then fourth, he says, he appeals to a succession of bishops as teachers in churches founded by apostles. Now, he's not appealing to kind of magic that just because there's a bishop, that means they will automatically teach the true thing. He was, he was very clear that there were heretical bishops, okay? This can happen. This has happened in church history, okay? But what he's saying is, if you've got a church, for example, in Rome, and he gives you a list of all the bishops of Rome, including Clement, and it's founded by St. Peter, and he's succeeded by this bishop who's succeeded by this bishop, then, then there's this kind of unbroken succession of bishops who are teaching the same thing, presumably, through their history. Uh, and you can trust that succession. This becomes a big issue in Christian history. Uh, Methodists and, say, Episcopalians today are engaged in dialogues with each other, and I'm part of the National Methodist Episcopal Dialogue Committee. This is one of the big issues. Uh, in the past, um, some Episcopalians have said Methodist clergy and uh, Methodist sacraments are not valid because we don't have an unbroken succession of bishops. Now, we've been learning some interesting things about that. Number one, their bishops in the Church of England or the Episcopal Church don't meet Irenaeus's criteria because he's only talking about bishops succeeding each other in a, an ancient church that was founded by an apostle, right? The second thing is, uh, it's very interesting, the Episcopalians and the Anglicans have told us our churches don't teach that. That's what Episcopalians have sometimes said, but they speak for themselves. They don't speak on behalf of our churches. So we met in London with uh, Paul Baker, who at that time was the chief ecumenical officer of the Church of England, and we asked him about this, and he said, where there's smoke, there's fire. There's reason why people have that impression that Anglicans teach this thing about uninterrupted apostolic succession of bishops. But he said, 
No Anglican church has ever passed any judgment on the ministerial orders or the sacraments of any other church. In fact, it's more a myth among Methodists about what Episcopalians teach than anything that the Episcopal or Anglican churches themselves teach. Nevertheless, the bishops, I think it's fair to say, ought to be a symbol of the continuity of the church. That's the kind of positive thing uh, that we can say, and that is the idea that Irenaeus had, and he thought all of these things function together. You affirm the Hebrew scriptures, you affirm the gospel that is according to the scriptures, you look at the Christian books, and he could look at the books, and the books that affirm that Jesus has a body, the books that start out appealing to the prophets that say, Behold, I send my messenger before thee to prepare thy, thy way. You know, those you can accept as true books for Christian scripture. And he thought that those were the teachings that were being uh, retained by that succession of bishops in the church. So we sometimes don't realize the good that heretics do. Heretics force us to think about things. Uh, uh, weird and wacky teachings, that's, that's my translation of heretical teachings, if you want to put it that way, they sometimes um, force us to think about things. So the church wanted to say, we reject deuterotheism in teaching there is one God. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in fact, that says exactly the next thing. Uh, we reject the idea that the material creation is evil. We reject it in favor of the teaching that the material world is God's good creation, and we affirm. That may seem like the most natural thing on earth to you, but it was a very controversial idea back in the 100s A.D. Third, the idea that salvation is primarily by gnosis, or esoteric knowledge, is rejected in favor of the teaching that salvation is by faith, although certain forms of gnosis continued to be affirmed by Christians. The word itself wasn't rejected, just the idea that it's a secret is what was being rejected. Christians wanted to say our faith is public. It's been taught openly in the world from the very uh, beginning. Uh, Pre-existence of souls was rejected in favor of the belief that souls come into existence at the time uh, that we come into our bodies. Uh, that, that continues to be a somewhat controversial issue for many centuries, but that's the general consensus that arises. And docetism was rejected in favor of the teaching that Christ truly suffered and died as a human being. In fact, if I could put it, put the orthodox teaching in a little more pointed way, that in Christ, God truly suffered and died as a human being in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, and that material reality of his suffering and death is something uh, that we want to affirm. Uh, Christians have consistently affirmed that teaching in uh, opposition to docetism uh, through our history. These developments led to the earliest formulations of Christian orthodoxy. Orthos means right, doxa means praise or teaching, and so it means right worship and right teaching, uh, and we begin to affirm that. Not a, a huge list of very specific things, but a general consensus about what constitutes Christian orthodoxy in response to these things.
we began to recognize a specific list of Christian scriptures, Christian books that grew directly out of these controversies and in responses to the other books that were being suggested by these uh, interesting, weird, and wacky teachers. Our Christian creeds grew out of the continued affirmation of the kerygma, of the basic gospel message. And you get that in the Apostles' Creed that we said earlier today. Jesus Christ who lived, who died, who was resurrected on the third day. That's the consistent core of Christian creeds, Christian teachings. And bishops became more and more prominent in church life and church structures as teachers who represented uh, the continuity of apostolic tradition. That wasn't always without its problems, but bishops uh, were the ones who tended to meet together in councils and come up with a, uh, a, an idea or a formulation of what the consensus was of the Christian community. Uh, and as they did so, then they had to go back home and see if it worked. So I sometimes say to my students, there were really two tests. Number one, the bishops enunciated the consensus, but then there's something called reception, and that means did people actually receive and practice these teachings? There were plenty of times when bishops thought they had figured out the answer to something, and they went back home, and the ordinary people in the churches said, let me think about that. Hmm. No, I don't think so. Uh, and uh, they just didn't do it. They didn't enact that, and it doesn't become real doctrine. There's a sense in which there's a, a democracy, not of the bishops, but the democracy of reception and people receiving the teachings and handing them on. Uh, I think uh, Christians historically took this as a sign that the Holy Spirit continued to work in the Christian community beyond the time of the New Testament. Now, one of the impressions you might gather growing up as an evangelical Christian, as I did, is that you had the true Christian faith proclaimed by Jesus, and the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, and the holy apostles proclaimed the faith, and then whack, it all stops. You know, and, and it's like, if you think about it, it's almost like the Holy Spirit went away for several thousand years, a couple of thousand years, and then showed up maybe at the time of the Reformation, actually shows up whenever your group starts, okay? Whenever your denomination, with John Wesley, we want to, okay, right, you know, uh, up until the time of John Wesley, no Holy Spirit, but then the Holy Spirit, that, that's a little selfish if you think about it, I mean, really, um, and, and a little shallow with respect to thinking about God. God doesn't stop working. The church messes up, no kidding. The church really messes up, uh, and, and we'll get this. This is part of what my teaching is in church history, of how often the church fails to carry out the gospel. The church, the church gets corrupted with political systems and doesn't do what the church ought to do and doesn't serve the world as Christ has called us to. But... The Holy Spirit continues to work in the Christian community uh, and we rejoice in the holy work of the Holy Spirit even today as we carry this faith on and hand it down to others.